you hear about the latest study? Hardly a day goes by, it seems, without news of some new investigation, and we learn that, say, heavy metal music improves concentration, or caffeine is linked to immortality. If only. Most of us probably just rely on reports from the media or the internet with a vague sense that things like this are published in some organized way somewhere by somebody. A team of expert scientists, right? And anybody who really wanted to could find the original article and see all the details. Probably. The ways in which these outcomes of scholarly inquiry are distributed are changing and differentiating fast, yet they all stem from a single source, intended to be an easier and more timely way for a new class of investigators to hear about each other's work, and which wound up helping to produce a fundamental shift in the very nature of research. And it might be happening all over again with outcomes as uncertain as research itself. A document that changed the world. The Philosophical Transactions, a scholarly journal published under the auspices of the Royal Society in London, 1665. I'm Joe Janes of the University of Washington Information School, and we should at least get the name right once, as it appeared on the title page of the first issue, dated March 6th of 1665. Philosophical Transactions, giving some account of the present undertakings, studies, and labors of the ingenious in many considerable parts of the world. It's often credited with being the first scientific journal, even though it was squeaked out by two months and a day by the Journal des Savants, published in Paris with similar but more generic and literary aims and a spottier publication record. The transactions have been published more or less, since its founding three and a half centuries ago. The first editor was Henry Oldenburg, the secretary of the then five-year-old Royal Society, founded to more broadly disseminate the findings of the newly emerging world of science and discovery. At first, the society kept the journal at arm's length, perhaps for financial reasons and with some justification. Old Oldenburg hoped to yield 150 pounds a year, but got closer to 40, barely enough to pay his rent. Early publication was erratic. Intended to be monthly, it almost never was, what with the finances, not to mention the last great plague that hit London in that first year. Perhaps a thousand copies were printed of early issues, though that varied too. Oldenburg also found it to be perilous business. Issue 27 is especially notorious as the one he didn't edit because he was locked in the Tower of London on suspicion of espionage due to all the correspondence he was carrying on with foreign scholars. By this point, a number of forces and developments had arrayed themselves to enable what we now think of as the scholarly journal to arise. Following the development of publishing in Europe in the 15th century came a general rise in literacy, secular thinking, and economic stability, all of which helped to provide a fertile environment for what we now call the scientific revolution, based on observation and questioning ancient authorities rather than just reprinting and parroting them. Francis Bacon, early in the 17th century, is often given credit for coalescing what would become the experiment, and thus the scientific method. And indeed, it's the format of that method that formed the structure for many scholarly articles then and now. 
lay out a problem or question, discuss what's been written about it before, design a method for investigating it, describe your results, and interpret them in drawing your conclusions. Those results must be shared and validated by one's peers, and in the early days, that was a one-to-one -one business by conversation, attendance at scientific meetings, or personal correspondence. Indeed, even today, titles of journals betray this heritage. For example, one of the most highly respected journals in physics is the Physical Review Letters. The philosophical transactions enabled scientists, then referred to as natural philosophers, hence the title, to disseminate their work much more widely, efficiently, and quickly, and not coincidentally, to shore up the claim of priority for who published something first and thus deserve the credit. That first issue is remarkable. After a couple of fawning pages aimed at the king and his patronage, we get down to business with an article on optics, then the first of several about the Great Comet of 1664, Boyle's summary of his experiments with cold, and a report of a very odd monstrous calf born in Hampshire with a triple tongue, among other deformities. The second issue already has commentary on articles in the first, and as the first year draws to a close, we start to see book reviews and even an index at the end, all familiar to users of journals since. As you look through that first year, you can almost feel them working it out, evolving not only the way they're communicating results of their new science, but the science and the process of the science itself. The transactions was a general purpose vehicle. Soon, though, journals started to arise for specific disciplines. Today, there are journals in every field and subfield and sub-subfield you can imagine, and then some. Tens of thousands of them, publishing what must be well over a million articles a year, not to mention the fields of endeavor that rely more on books, book chapters, conference proceedings, technical reports, and even posters to disseminate their work. The world of scholarly communication has gotten a lot more complicated in the last few decades. Behind the scenes and under the surface, things have been afoot. A series of corporate mergers and acquisitions have meant that more and more journals are in fewer and greedier hands. Add to this the critical nature of reputation and reward and the demands of the funding and tenure systems, and that means that individual high status can't not have journals. Single journals can cost upwards of tens of thousands of dollars a year to subscribe to. It's not unusual for a major research or a university library to spend millions of dollars a year just for subscriptions, and prices have risen by double-digit percentages year after year for decades. And those subscriptions typically only get you access to the digital works. Back in the day, if you dropped a journal, you at least had the old print issues you'd received. Now, if the tap is turned off, you're left with nothing but happy memories. At the same time, we've seen the rise of venues like natively digital and open source journals, which often dispense with copyright and the profit motivation so that they're available to all. Now, somebody's got to pay for the work that goes on like editing and reviewing, so authors often foot the bill. Easy if you're a chemist with a research grant, less so if you're a literary scholar with a laptop. 
Since most of these are new and thus don't have a long track record, their attractiveness is somewhat dimmed, especially for younger scholars, by a lack of reputation and status, and they can also be the devil to find since they rarely get covered by large and established journal search databases. My generation of scholars grew up knowing we'd publish in print, mostly text, and might have to fight to include tables or figures, let alone photographs or <gasps> color. Now, my doctoral students easily envision publishing digitally, with text, sure, but also video clips or software simulations or real-time commentary from readers embedded in the writing, and perhaps providing access to the raw data their conclusions are based on. Maybe that'll be a journal, or a scholarly blog, or something far more exotic. Freed from the constraints of the journal article, they'll be able to construct new and different works and eventually ask new and different questions that never would have even been imaginable before. Put all these together and you start to call into question traditional roles, such as editing, peer review, and publishing as well as the endurance and continuity that the scholarly community, indeed the scholarly enterprise, values and requires. Since scholarship relies so heavily on the record of what has gone before, the ability to consult that, question it, and critique it, to find what has been written yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is a critical component in making it work. And we're going to have to figure out ways to preserve and maintain that record in all its myriad and diversifying forms going forward, representing what we know, how we know it, and what we have yet to learn.